This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. On this episode, we're taking a special look at the intersection of audiology and public health, and we'll be hearing clips from the podcast archive to bring the conversation to life. Those clips were selected by Asha Special Interest Group 8, which highlights issues surrounding public health audiology. Joining me for the conversation is Lauren Dillard, the SIG-8 editor for the journal Perspectives of the ASHA Special Interest Groups. Lauren is an audiologist, public health researcher, and postdoctoral fellow at the Medical University of South Carolina. SIG-8 curated the clips we'll be listening to today, choosing three past episodes of the podcast to highlight. I asked Lauren to tell us about SIG-8, what connects these clips, and what the episodes share. So SIGATE is a really great group that focuses on connections between audiology and public health. And together we chose these three clips that we're going to talk about today because they provide different examples on overlaps between public health and audiology. Um, and importantly, they also talk about different methods that can be used to address some issues that are really central to the intersection of public health and audiology. Uh, one of these important issues is access to hearing health care. You're an audiologist and a public health researcher, so your work is in the intersection between hearing health and public health. Are there any misconceptions or things that you would want to highlight about the relationship between these two areas? Yeah, I think one of the the big misconceptions is that public health and audiology are two separate fields, when really there's a lot of overlap between the two. And as I continue to learn more and more about public health as I'm working in this field, I see more and more that public health is essentially fundamental to everything that we do as audiologists. This ranges from the way that we are identifying people who might have hearing loss in the population to the methods that we're using for testing and treating patients. Well, let's start with the first clip. This is from the 2022 episode titled At the Intersection of OTC Hearing Aids and Mobile Audiology. It features Marcia Hay McCutcheon, a professor at the University of Alabama. Briefly, why did you select this episode, this clip? So we chose this clip because it's a really good example of how we can apply public health methods that are used in other areas of public health to the field of audiology. I spoke with Marsha before over-the-counter hearing aids began to hit shelves. They've now been available for just over a year. She was preparing for a clinical trial that would include the use of a 40-foot-long, 33,000-pound mobile audiology clinic as a part of the Hear Hear Alabama project. That's H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E. Marsha would be and still is asking questions about what over-the-counter hearing aids might mean for people who live in rural areas with no audiology services nearby. I asked her to tell us about what she was hoping to learn. We here in Alabama think that the -the over-the-counter hearing aids are a wonderful thing for people who don't have access to any hearing health care. But we know that we probably can't just expect people to order these online and to fit them for themselves. There's probably going to have to be some support. And the reason we think that is because access to internet here is spotty. Most of the devices that are available, you'll have to have some sort of app on a smartphone to fit them. And that's great for people who are very comfortable and familiar with playing around with technology in an app on their phone, 
But for a lot of people who live in rural communities in Alabama, they don't have regular access to the internet. So they're not as comfortable just playing around with a phone app as somebody who has access all the time. What we're trying to do is to determine, well, how much support are people in rural communities who don't have internet access or are not comfortable working with a phone app, how much support are they going to need to fit these devices? We have three groups that we're looking at and the support level varies among the group. And so we have a number of outcome measures that will hopefully tell us, okay, this group of individuals did the best in terms of their outcome measures. This group didn't do very well. So we're hoping that we really get those definitive outcomes across groups so that that will then help us to determine how much support is needed. We produced an episode of the podcast. It was called OTCs on the Horizon, right? This is just as we were anticipating the legislation. And guests talked about audiologists giving a renewed or strengthened role to oral rehabilitation because of the availability of OTCs. Are you including oral rehabilitation in your research? Yes, and that's the part of the support I think that we're talking about. Everybody will get all of the support before the end of their trial. It just depends on when they get that support as the trial is progressing. We're training, in fact, we're doing that right now, we're training what we're calling hearing health coaches to be able to provide support to adults who receive these over-the-counter hearing aids. We're giving them information about hearing loss, basics about hearing loss, the basics about how we evaluate people with hearing loss, and then just information about the hearing aids, these over-the-counter hearing aids themselves, how to program it on the app, how to turn it on and off, very basic information. So that when they go to work with people who've received these over-the-counter devices, they'll hopefully be comfortable providing that support. So, you know, it's great that the truck comes to these small rural communities, but the truck has to leave at some point. And so we want to make sure that when the truck leaves, residents in the communities can still receive support that they need. That's the whole community health advisor training, or as I mentioned, what we're calling the hearing health coaching training. You told the Asha Leader magazine, quote, I realized that there were very limited resources for people with hearing loss outside of the larger centers here in Alabama. Once you go into rural areas, there are almost no clinical services for people with hearing loss, end quote. So this is kind of what you're talking about now, you know, thinking of the number of people living far from clinics. If your research demonstrates the value of oral rehabilitation with OTCs, how might that be replicated for folks in the future? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. You know, we're hoping that our data does show that people will need some sort of support in terms of oral rehabilitation after they receive their hearing aids. But how that looks like in the future and how we can fund that, we still got to work all of that out. I'm thinking about the possibility of providing these services through local community pharmacies. Is this where OTC hearing aids are going to be provided to people who live in rural communities? And if they are, then maybe we can collaborate with pharmacists and pharmacy technicians to work that out. But as I mentioned, we're still at the beginning stages here. 
and there's a lot that we have to work on. Thinking outside of this specific trial, as you drive around Alabama, what else have you learned about the hearing needs of people who live far away from clinics? We had a number of discussions with people who, with hearing loss, with people who worked in the community, and with their friends and family. And all three groups, they all said, we need more resources in communities, in these rural communities. We need more education about hearing loss. One family member said to me, I know where to take my father to get his eyes checked. But I just thought, I don't know where to go to take his hearing checked, you know? That was a big thing. One of the community stakeholders said to me, we need to figure out how can we create what we need from what's already in our communities. So very insightful comments. Essentially, the overarching themes were the need for increased resources and education in these smaller rural communities. And that's something you can accomplish with the mobile clinic. We're hopeful that we can do that. Marcia, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yes. Great to be here. Marcia says the clinical trial has visited three rural counties since November. The team was just beginning to visit a fourth when I emailed her in September. There's more than two years left in the clinical trial, but in the email she wrote, quote, generally we're finding that adults with hearing loss in rural Alabama counties report being less handicapped by their hearing loss and their speech perception outcomes are substantially improved with the OTC hearing aids, end quote. And she went on to say that some people reported that they cannot live without their hearing aids now that they have them. And Marsha included the caveat that they're very early in the research, but she says the team is finding people use their hearing aids more appropriately when they are given guidance and support for them. Lauren, up next, we're going to hear from one of your SIG-8 colleagues, Sarah Warren. Sarah is an assistant professor in the School of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Memphis. In this clip, she provides a brief history of public health audiology. Why did you select this episode? So I personally love this episode because I think that Dr. Warren does a really wonderful job of describing how audiology fits within the framework of public health. She really clearly lays out this what she calls public health 1.0, 2.0, and what we're approaching is public health 3.0. Public Health 3.0 is really moving away from traditional medical models to provide more holistic care, including hearing health care that focuses on community and well-being, as well as the treatment of hearing loss. Another thing that really struck me about this episode is that she talks about the need for intentional thinking and and intentional action to further this overlap between the fields of public health and audiology. So sort of as we've already talked about, there's there's all this overlap between the two fields that that is there, and we know that it's there, but being intentional about the way that we're moving it forward is really important as a field. In our conversation, I mentioned to Sarah that it seemed that there was increasing focus on public health, and she said she had a short answer and a long answer, and I opted to hear the long one. So from the episode published earlier this year titled, What Public Health Says About the Future of CSD, here's Sarah Warren. 
to explain the trends we're seeing in public health, I'm just going to give you a general overview of health in the United States. I know that we all learn in our programs the history of audiology or the history of speech language pathology. All the audiologists are like, wasn't there something about a world's fair or a state fair in Wisconsin? <laughs> yes, there is, but it took becoming a public health student for me to see how we fit in into the larger picture. I'm just gonna talk a little bit about healthcare in the United States. Healthcare started looking like modern healthcare around the Industrial Revolution, so the end of the 19th century, and germ theory emerged. At the time, healthcare delivery was fractured and unregulated, and then there was this Flexner report that came out that was really critical of medical care in the United States. And the result of this was a standardization and regulation of programs, and it became a hyper-rational approach to care. So this ushered in a new era of scientific discovery in physiology, biochemistry, and disease. And that really sets the tone for healthcare in the Western world for the next century. That's the foundation of this medical model that I've been talking about. So this medical model that the disease or the injury, that's what we're focused on. Less emphasis on social, psychological, or environmental factors, and more emphasis on the specific condition and the individual with that condition. As the century goes on, we see the establishment of specializations in different fields. Again, just as an audiology or speech language pathology, there were a number of professions that emerged special education, social work, physical therapy. And there are these organizations that came about to determine the qualifications to practice in each profession, define a scope of practice, establish a way to assure their domain in the area of expertise, how to carry out a scientific program to build on this knowledge and create practice patterns. And so with speech-language pathology, this started with speech correctionist. And in 1925, the American Academy of Speech Correction is established. But the primary focus here is intervention. So the primary focus is people who have speech and language disorders and correcting that. Around the same time, the field of audiology is emerging. It actually was emerging from a branch of experimental psychology, but it really wasn't until World War I and World War II that the professions really solidified in terms of rehabilitation. Again, we learn this in school, but we think about ourselves in isolation. But this was happening in physical therapy, occupational therapy, all of the rehabilitative fields are strengthening at this point because there was so much work to do in terms of rehabilitation with service members coming back. So in the public health world, we look at that era and we call that public health 1.0, that era from the early 20th century to the mid 1980s. This is when modern public health became seen as a governmental function. Uh, it became specialized among these different professions. Then around the 1980s, we shift into what's known as public health 2.0. So in public health 1.0, we have an expanded understanding of diseases and an expanded life expectancy. Now we're shifting our attention to managing chronic disease. 
people are living longer and we're moving into management. So at this time, speech language pathology has a shift. It went from being defined in terms of form, syntax, and phonology into more content-based or semantics. So the speech language pathologist is less like a coach and more like to work collaboratively with their clients, again, in an intervention type approach. Around what year are we at right now? This was occurring around the 1970s. So again, we're shifting towards disease management or condition management at this time. People are living longer. Uh, at the same time, audiology is having a boom in technology. Um, we're having advancements in digital hearing aids, cochlear implants, and something really special happens in audiology at this time. This is the era of Marion Downs making tremendous progress towards the universal newborn hearing screening program, which is such an impressive public health program within our field that we often don't even think of as public health. So this is the first time out of this century I've been talking about that we really start doing prevention. And I know we think about prevention as in preventing hearing loss, but remember what I said, it's, it's not about the hearing loss, it's about the communication disorder. So by early identification of hearing loss, we can prevent those communication disorders later in life through the early intervention. This was a tremendous stride in audiology. This is public health that was occurring in our field. The original question was, why are we currently seeing this increase in interest in public health? And I'm finally getting to the answer of that. We are now shifting into a new era. I've talked about public health 1.0. That second era is public health 2.0. Now the field of public health is calling our current shift public health 3.0. This is our current state of public health. We're saying now that public health goes beyond traditional health care in a way that involves community, health equity, holistic care. Again, this goes beyond communication sciences and disorders. This is a trend in public health that's overarching. I tended to think of communication sciences and disorders in isolation. And now I understand that we are a part of this larger health ecosystem. And I can say so confidently what I see in the future for audiology and speech language pathology, because I see what other fields are doing. I can see that medical schools are now requiring social and behavioral science questions on their MCAT. They're favoring applicants with public health backgrounds. They're integrating public health competencies into their training programs. It's not just med schools, nursing schools, dental schools, optometry schools. I think we're a little behind the curve on that. And part of what I'm doing in my career is trying to catch us up to that because I know that's where we're heading. I know that we're in this new era of public health 3.0, a different way of thinking about what we're doing. I can look back and say our field has followed the trajectory of other healthcare fields for the past hundred years. And that helps me see where we're going. I'm working to make sure that we get there. Lauren, reaction to that clip? I mean, I think that it's really important and valuable to understand how audiology fits in with the rest of these different medical fields, because Dr. Warren is correct that we are showing the same trends as all of these other areas of medicine. And as she highlights, 
there is a lot of great opportunity as we're moving towards public health 3.0 to really change and improve the way that we're providing services to our patients in the field of audiology. Our final clip of the episode features Laura Coco, another of your Seagate colleagues and an assistant professor in speech language hearing sciences at San Diego State University. Uh, Laura spoke as a part of the 2022 research symposium on hearing at the ASHA convention. What was it that made you and your colleagues in SIG-8 decide to include a clip from Laura Coco in this episode? Dr. Coco does a great job of working towards providing services in rural areas. And importantly, she and her colleagues are using methods that are really fundamental to public health research and practice. One of those areas is the use of trained community health workers or trained facilitators to help audiologists in providing services to certain communities. Laura's research often focuses on reaching people who need hearing care and live in rural areas where they're likely far from an audiologist. One strategy combined the use of community health workers, like you're saying, who she calls on the ground experts and also use telepractice to address the needs of those that are located far away from audiologists. And this is something she did as a part of the research project Conexiones. That project allowed audiologists to connect remotely with a community in an Arizona border town. So it was about an hour and a half south of the University of Arizona, where we were located. But the towns are really connected. There's a lot of travel back and forth a lot of connection. People who live in that border town go to the University of Arizona or work there. So they seem far away, but they are culturally connected. And actually, the town of Tucson, where the university is, is known as a border town, even though it's an hour and a half away. So the the town in which the research took place, there were no audiologists in that town. So you'd have to travel an hour and a half to get to the nearest audiologist. And the motivation for doing this study really came from research that had been done even before I came onto this project, which identified that there is this importance in that community of hearing, but an absence of services. I was struck by hearing Laura mention that in the town, hearing health was a priority, but there weren't audiologists to meet that need. And I wanted to learn more. Yeah, that came out of focus groups and interviews with people in that town and providers. Health in general is a priority in that community. And if you ask someone, if it was identified that you had a hearing loss, would you want to do something about it? They would say yes, you know, in general. But given that there were no permanent practice locations in town, it's not something that would be immediately at the top of their mind and providers weren't necessarily referring people all the time because there's not a convenient location to refer them to. And this town is not unique in that way. There are rural towns all over the U.S. that have no local practices in which providers are considering that to be a barrier and potentially not referring people because they're thinking this person's not going to drive an hour to, to get to an audiologist, but there are solutions. There are strategies. One, like I said, is telehealth. The other is partnering with community health workers. And in this community, and like I said, there are many like them, 
it was important to have both community health workers and teleaudiology because the community health workers are the bridge between either the researchers and the people in the community or the clinicians or both. So they help, you know, bridge in terms of trust. We're not from that community. We don't know kind of the best way to approach certain things. And the community health workers do. They're the experts in that. And and I think that once we built trust with community health workers, that was then an important step in in gaining trust with the community members. I asked Laura to tell me a little bit more about the project. I wanted to know, once it was up and rolling, how were the community health workers and telepractice combining to meet this town's hearing care needs? One thing to mention is that this project happened before the pandemic. And before the pandemic, telepractice was telehealth. Not everyone knew what that word meant, what it referred to exactly. And now it's it's commonplace, which is fantastic. But I'm just going to briefly mention what we're referring to here. So we're all on the same page. But this project involves the synchronous delivery of hearing aid services over telehealth, which means the audiologist is at one location and the patient and a facilitator is at another location. And in real time, the hearing aids are being fitted and adjusted and verified over the internet using remote desktop sharing technology, basically. And in this project, that patient site facilitator was a community health worker. And then we had a comparison group in which they were not a community health worker. And what we were looking at is to what extent could the community health workers be trained and comfortable and kind of experts in that role as a facilitator. In that role, they're putting the headphones on the patient, putting the real ear probe tube microphone in the patient's ears, making them comfortable, kind of orienting them to the space. And so we trained them on those things. And then, like I said, in real time, the audiologists fit the hearing aids. And we were looking at, you know, patient satisfaction and hearing aid benefit. And I was a um, not quite sure how patients, participants would react to being fit remotely over telehealth. And, you know, in this case, in Conexiones, it went so smoothly. They talked directly to the screen. They were comfortable. They were at ease. The community health worker carried out all of the hands-on duties that they were trained to do. There were technical snafus, you know, like anything, of course. We were in rural America where the internet can sometimes fail you, but fortunately, there's always someone on site. We had an IT person. We had a big team. It went pretty smoothly, and everyone was very happy with their hearing aids and wore them as much as you could expect. Laura's work uses community health workers and telepractice to reach a community that otherwise was lacking access to hearing health care. And near the end of our conversation, she shared a few of her takeaways from when the project concluded. In the process of the project, we trained the community health workers and the non-community health worker facilitators on these duties that I mentioned. So putting the headphones on, orienting the patient to the space, and It sounds pretty simple, but when those duties are so specific to audiology, it takes time for that training. And then that training has to be maintained because, like I said, community health workers have other roles. They're doing 
cancer support groups and health fairs and other things. So you take them three weeks away from audiology and they need to be refreshed on this role. So one big takeaway is the need for a structured training that is able to be kind of refreshed and maintained over time. So I guess it's the importance of training. And another is just the vast number of people that audiology is not reaching. I, I knew that before, but it's reinforced every time I do a project like this. We had a lot of people who showed up for recruitment and engagement for this study who wanted to enroll. And, you know, we had to limit it due to the scope and the timeline of the study. People who were interested kind of throughout the study who wanted to participate. It was a randomized control trial, so that wasn't possible due to the protocol. So people were, one, interested in research that had a goal of improving access to care. And two, there's just a lot of people who are not accessing the traditional route of audiology care. And there are ways that we can improve that. That was our final clip of the episode. But if listeners want to hear any of the full episodes, visit our website at on.asha.org slash podcast. Lauren, where can folks learn more about public health audiology? So there's a lot of good resources, but this is a really good place to plug for those who might be interested to look at joining SIG-8. So this is the special interest group. So SIG-8 provides a really nice way to connect with other people, including audiologists and other professionals in the field that might have similar interests and are equally as motivated to advance the field of public health audiology. There's a lot of benefits from joining a SIG and sort of a simpler place to start could be if you look online at the ASHA SIG 8 website, there is a list of resources to learn more about how the fields of public health and audiology intersect. Lauren, thank you for joining me for this episode. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much for having me. And a special thank you to all of SIG 8 for curating this episode as well. Find the full episodes featuring all of the clips we heard today at on.asha.org slash podcast. While you're there, you can find a link to learn more about ASHA Special Interest Group 8. That's at on.asha.org slash podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.